Welcome to the Reform Rookie Podcast. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so? Worthy vicar, do we find anything here of relics? By faith man lives and is made righteous, not by what he does for himself. Be it adoration of relics, singing of masses, pilgrimages to Rome, purchase of pardon for his sins, but by faith in what God has done for him already through his son. Dr. Martin, if you leave the Christian to live only by faith, if you sweep away all good works, all these glorious things you dismiss as mere crutches, what will you put in their place? Christ. Man only needs Jesus Christ. So, like I said, today I have a good feeling we might, we just might finish chapter one. Um, what we're talking about here with the, with the burnt offering, and we've talked about the spiritual uh, applications and, and, and the spiritual truths found in there as, as Christ being that whole burnt offering. Uh, all the offerings ultimately point to Christ, uh, but this one, as far as transcendence, the covering that... Um, enable us even to approach God. And so the, the, the chapter that we've been looking at in depth the last couple of weeks is from Gary North's Boundaries and Dominion, and the first chapter is called uh, Sacrifice, Stewardship, and Debt. And so we, we talked kind of in, in, in depth the last two weeks about, about debt and then about um, sacrifices and the free market, mandatory sacrifices in the free markets. And trying to understand how man should be looking at the world and, and looking at the economy. And his, his comment was that covenant-breaking man is always looking to the works of his own hands as the basis for redemption. And so he's looking at the work of his hands could placate God, um, but just placate God. He says you know, he exhibits his faith in two ways. He seeks to offer a public sacrifice of reduced value. And we talked about the problem with that. Or he'll put himself under the covenantal jurisdiction of false divinities that time and again claim total sacrifice. When you get away from and try to go aside from what God has called us to, there's always that vacuum. And we always end up finding ourselves um, getting under uh, an oppressive state where they, they put their claim on everything. God says everything is mine, and he lays out these sacrifices as a reminder the fact that we're stewards and so we give him our very best we give him that which is most valuable and we're recognizing that we owe him everything and yet by giving this one we we also recognize he puts us in charge of the rest to to be good stewards of it when we try to ignore god <laughs> yet we still want someone who can um bless the work of our hands and yet not interfere with our lives Ultimately, whenever we do this, we end up um, seeing the state take over and demanding that total ownership. And so we, we you know, mentioned about having a house. You could pay your mortgage on the house, own the house outright, but you're still renting the land that the house is on. And so if you don't pay it, the state comes and says, mine, and we'll take it, right? We talked about how, you know, the state looks at our children as their children 
because if you want to homeschool your children here in New York, you have to, you know, sign up and, and fill out all this paperwork and, and, and these reports, and they have to approve it. And if they don't approve it, if they feel like you're not educating their their children <laughs> in such a in, in an appropriate way, they'll say, oh, for the good of the child, we will take that child out of the home. That's that's a god. That's a, we're, we're slaves. Uh, it's a mess. So the problem is though is because covenant breaking men is schizophrenic. Let me close that off. Could you come in and take this for a yes, second? Sir. Put my phone on vibrate here, but I saw a prayer request that came out that you could. Uh, at least put on the, the prayer chain. Okay. So, what do we see? When we when we're talking about uh, the state taking over, when we ignore God's required public sacrifices, if they're ignored, if they're denied by society, we can see increasingly successful attacks on the legitimacy of private property. God gives private property. The understanding is it's, it's his, we're stewards, but he does give us legal, lawful ownership of things. You can't have the prohibition against stealing if everything is just common, right? If it's all just community goods, um, then no one owns anything. And so you don't need to say thou shalt not steal because everything is everybody's, right? Um, the state it kind of ignores that because they'll take, what, eminent domain and stuff like that. They'll say, nope, it's actually ours and we get to decide who can have it and when and where and how much they have to pay to uh, to live there. So we can expect to see uh, the state substitute itself as a new god. Um, why does this matter for us? Uh, Gary North says, this is the reason why an intellectual defense of economic freedom, if it is to be culturally successful over the long run must be paralleled by the church's successful proclamation of the gospel of redemption, the buying back of individuals and institutions through Christ's once only sacrifice. He says, no matter how brilliant a technical intellectual defense of specific aspects of the free market may be, we were talking about free market versus state, um, neither one can be sovereign. But no matter how wonderful the free market can be, and no matter how visible the failures of socialist economic planning may become, and how appropriate today. Yeah, he's writing this decades ago, but socialism is always, always trying to sneak in there, right? And people are always promoting um, the, the quote-unquote virtues of socialism. He says, even when you point out that it's a failure, and even though you talk about how good the free market is, the judicial foundation of the free market and the... Uh, epistemological foundation of economic science both must begin with public proclamation of the covenant reality of God's curse in Eden and the covenantal reality of God's redeeming sacrifice at Calvary. Economic theory is no more autonomous than society is. People try to look at the economy as something that's morally neutral. It's just, it's just facts, right? You just... You're looking at something and, and you're dealing with, with, with it as it is. And so people can offer different theories and one's not necessarily right or wrong. <laughs> they might think one is better than another. But if you, it's not autonomous and it's not neutral. There, there is a morality behind it. And it's because you're living in God's world with, with God's reality. 
Um, so he says the, uh, the appeal of statism will eventually overcome technical critics criticisms of the economists. Men want to worship something more powerful than textbook supply and demand curves. Uh, that's right. Um, the visible sanctions of the state are more easily understood and more readily feared than the complex sanctions of the free market. The visible hand of the state, however spastic or grabbing it may be, is more readily believed in and feared than the invisible hand of the free market. So, just trying to understand how how these things work and you know we see the free market if it's done properly is the better system right for an economy um, we recognize the the dangers of corruption crony capitalism those kind of things and so we recognize the state needs to be there to enforce certain laws and, and boundaries but when people don't have a biblical worldview they will see that there are disparities at times right there's going to be times where some people are wealthier than others. Some people, you know, and they think in their mind, well, that's not fair. So what's their basis of saying what fair is? They're not looking to God. They're looking to themselves and what they think is this arbitrary, you know, it's ultimately arbitrary. You know, secular humanism is, um, it's a religion in and of itself. And what they will do is if they see, well, this doesn't seem fair, we need it to be equal. <laughs> and now this should be very... <laughs> This should be like, you know, alarm bells ringing in your ears because you're hearing about this all the time now. Um, uh, Kamala Harris, what, the day of the election or the day before, was putting out about how we need equality and equity and, and the idea is we have to make it fair. Um, it's not enough that you have equal opportunity. You know, we say, oh, it's America. Everyone, you know, you come here, you work hard, and you have a shot, you know, uh, to make something of yourself. Now, you have to have like the, the same, you can't even have the same potential to apply yourself. You have to, and even then, you, you don't. That's not the way it works in God's world. People are born with certain advantages. The way I was born, you know, my, my family background, my, my DNA, my physical structure, I will never be a world famous NBA player, right? You know, it's not fair, right? It's not equal. No, that's not how it works. That's not how, how the world um, works. Um, there are disparities. I mean, you, you might be born into a, a more advantageous and advantageous situation, you know, where you, you'll have opportunities other people won't have. But if we have freedom, you have opportunities to at least work hard and try and apply yourself and, and, and God could bless those things. But, um, the secular world today says, well, everyone has to have the same outcome as well. It's not enough to have um, equal opportunity. You must have an equal outcome. Um, and they think this is fair. This is justice. But it doesn't work that way. Because if you look at socialism and communism in, in, the, in the past and in states today, is it equal? Is everyone in that nation you know, who, who uses that um, experiencing the same life? Or are they all equally poor, but you have the elites, you have the, 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 uh, the powerful who are actually, um, they're wealthy. They have, they have all these different things um, that the other people don't have because they've taken away their ability to, um, you know, make, 
income, you know, to apply themselves to to get ahead, to do those things. In their mind, that's not a uh, that's not a moral virtue. Is that is that making sense? Is that um, any questions about that? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, what's the better system? What's Gary North? What does Gary North believe? You you dislike both the socialist and the free market, or is there a third system that you're gonna? Well, what, what we're what we're looking at is um. Could I get a, a paper towel? Yes. Okay. Um. The free market and the state both have their place, but we, it, we have to recognize that it's it's God's reality. When we talk about sacrifice, this idea that you are giving what you have, um, you're paying tribute to God first. You, you're recognizing him in the world that you live, the things that you have, you're, you're recognizing the fact that you're a steward. So what you have to do is, is look at God's law and say, well, how does it apply to the economy? How does it apply to my business dealings? How does it apply to, you know, when I'm using my finances, using my money, you know, in their case, using their, their crops, their animals. So, um, here we go. They weren't open? <laughs> I thought it was just me because I'm wearing a sweater and drinking coffee. You're still a fan? Not much, no. <laughs> so, That's all about it. Thank you. So he was saying that the state possesses uh, monopolistic power, negative physical sanctions. He goes, you infuse that with this messianic morality of the modern welfare state, uh, positive sanctions. It will either buy control of the free market, um, you know, that's like um, the Keynesian economics, or it'll suppress it and you'll have socialism. He goes, without explicitly biblical foundations, free market economic thought will remain merely a technical application of right-wing enlightenment philosophy, knowledge without power. Uh, he says, free market social theory will remain the intellectual plaything of a minority of professional economists, most of whom are employed by the state <laughs> in tax-funded universities. Uh, without the grounding in sacrifice and sanctions, economic analysis will begin at best with an acknowledgement of the visible effects of God's curse in Genesis. And this is where we have to realize when you think of how people look at our society, to, well, not the society, when you look at the world, you know, we're, we're thinking about um, the scarcity, we're thinking about the curse, we're thinking about the fact that um, the things have been broken in the world. He tells Adam, you know, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree, which I commanded, saying, thou shalt not eat of it. He goes, curses the ground for your sake. In sorrow you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns also and thistles it shall bring forth to thee, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread till thou return to the ground. For out of it you were taking, and dust you are, and from dust you will return. Um, what he says what we have to do is, what must become central to economic analysis is the underlying the uh, theology of the five-point covenant that preceded God's imposition of negative sanctions against the creation. So you have number one, the integrated doctrines of the special creation, the sovereignty of God as creator, and therefore his absolute ownership of the creation. So first point of the covenant, that God is sovereign over all of it. Point two, the doctrine of God's 
the doctrine of God's delegation of secondary ownership of the creation to man, right? So the hierarchy. God created man to have dominion. So we're the ones who are the stewards over the earth. Uh, point three, the doctrine of the law of God, which appears in the form of an exclusive and therefore exclusionary property boundary. Right, so there's, there's boundaries, uh, these stipulations. Point four, the doctrine of God's negative sanctions against the person who violates his law and property. You know, thou shalt not steal. <laughs> and, and what happens if you do? There's, there's sanctions against that. I mean, then that's just one aspect. Uh, the doctrine of the promise, the, the fifth point. The doctrine of the promised negative historical sanctions against Satan through God's promised seed. We're seeing that, um, he says, the acknowledgement of the reality of God-cursed economic scarcity is necessary, but not sufficient for the reconstruction of economic analysis. Because we must also return in God's word and apply covenantally the judicial foundations of economic reconstruction, the progressive removal in history of the effects of God's curse. You know, how many times have you heard, like, the, the earth is winding down, right? Um, you know, they, they talk about fossil fuels and they talk about these things, and you know, and we're running out of natural resources. And you'll hear guys like Bill Gates and others who say, you know, you know, the world is overpopulated. The earth cannot sustain our growth. When you hear that, talking about billionaires, right, who are brilliant, they say, right? Um, and they're saying, these men who understand economics and they understand science and they understand the way things work in the world, they're saying, we have natural resources that are limited, they're finite, and we will eventually run out. Um, the way we do things, we're, we're destroying the earth, and ultimately we can try to make all these adjustments and do all these different things, but the only way we'll be able to make the earth last is to get rid of us, right? Uh, we're, well, no, that's right. That's more specifically you, because remember, when it comes to those ideas of socialism and communism, the little people are the problem. The elite always manage to do very well for themselves. You know, they talk about your your carbon footprint and how you have to be careful about you know your Toyota in the driveway, and they're taking private jets all over the world to speak at conferences to tell you how dangerous you are uh, to the to the world. Um, so in their world, the way they with the way they view things is that there's a scarcity and we're the problem and they need to get rid of us, right? Um, and so they're looking at the world in terms of the curse, but they're not looking at, <laughs> God says he's making all things new. Um, they're not looking at the fact that God is sovereign over the earth and he told us be fruitful and multiply and, and take dominion and rule over these things. And there's no point throughout scripture where he says, but once you get to that number, that's it. <laughs> You're done. You know, stop, stop populating the earth. You know, just force sterilizations, abortions, and do all that stuff because you're ruining my place. You know, that's, that's not how it works. And if you don't have, if you listen to the, the Bill Gates of the world and these scientists and, and all these people talking about how, you know, our 
climate is and how our economy is and, and you know what's good for mankind what is their presupposition what is their their foundation you know for looking at the world and trying to solve problems if they don't have an understanding that God is sovereign and we can trust him but we have to live our lives in conformity to his standard uh, found in the scriptures they're gonna get it wrong every time you know if you if you have a uh, if you don't understand what the problem is you're never gonna find the solution I find myself saying that a lot these days um, if, if you don't know what the problem is you're never gonna get to the right solution and they don't understand what the problem is you look you look at our situation today COVID-19 and people are wearing masks everywhere by themselves on a mountaintop <laughs> but wearing a mask because someone might come in contact with them um, and and they're living in absolute fear because they have no eternal perspective um, and, and they have all they have is you know the next few breaths out of their lungs and they'll do anything they can to keep it including give up their freedom give up their liberty give up everything you know to to save their life and we will enslave ourselves for just a little bit more time right uh, we'll give up our freedom for safety um, something that we specifically told not to do <laughs> over and over again um, yeah you know from Jesus himself who tells us whoever tries to save his life will lose it whoever loses his life for my sake will save it all the way to uh, which of the founding fathers? Um, so I want to say Benjamin Franklin, but I might be wrong. <laughs> Whoever would give up a little uh, liberty for security uh, deserves neither and will lose both. <laughs> um, this was it, Franklin? Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> it's propaganda. Um, maybe. But I mean, there's. If you don't live according to God's word, you're. you're you're going to be a, a mess. We're seeing the results now. Uh, you have these competing worldviews, and we look at COVID-19, and we look at you know the government doing lockdowns and and telling people who are trying to provide for their families that they're not essential, and they'll shut them down. And don't worry, don't worry. We'll send you a surplus, uh, a surplus, a, a stimulus check. Surpluses. If we had a surplus, <laughs> you're wiping us out financially, but we'll send you a stimulus check. We'll print up money so you can spend it. Um, and we're still waiting on that second one, right? as if that's going to solve all your problems. Uh, uh, you know, $1,200 a person. I don't know what kind of bills these guys have <laughs> that you can go months and like, oh, $1,200. That'll that'll solve all your problems. Everything's better. Um, you probably racked it up in interest rates already on your credit cards that we talked about last time, right? Um, what what should be the response? Should we look to the government to to shut everything down? Um, should we look to you know the the government to you know rush out a vaccine because that's great to inject something in your body that's a rush job, right? <laughs> Want to get that out as soon as possible? Totally safe. Um, what could possibly possibly go wrong? Um, what would be the response to a, a worldwide uh, pandemic? Well, what, what would be the first thing we might want to do? Pray, repent. There's the word I'm looking for: repentance. How many in the church even say that this could be from God? You'll hear crazy nut jobs say it here and there um, that this is from God and, and we should repent. 
I was raising my hand for those on the tape. <laughs> um, like, what's so funny? Um, but the church, by and large, is not talking about it that way. You have some people who are on one extreme, and they'll say, God will never send you know, anything that could hurt anyone. God is not, he's a God of healing. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't hurt anyone. He would never judge anyone. And I'm very sorry for those people because they've read nothing in their Bible that's actually gotten past, you know, their eyes and into their brain. But um, then you have people, a lot of people today will say, well, it's a sin, it's a sin-cursed world, right? It's fallen. And this falls into that same kind of category uh, as these economists, right? And, and the people who would look at our society and say, we're dealing with the curse. There's scarcity. Things are rough and they're not going to get any better. We'll have to take matters into our own hands to do the best we can. And that means we need less people. Um, we should recognize this is God's world. If you guys um, are not aware, probably almost everyone is here, um, but they had the, the, the conference on the wrath of God that was held at the uh, Word of Truth Church. And so the Reformed Rookie, I believe, if you're listening to this tape, I believe he's also putting it out on there, those talks. And what is the wrath of God? What does it look like? Is it still for today? Um, what about plagues? Um, Pastor Jensen talked about plagues. And, and you can look at COVID-19 as something of a plague. It's a minor plague by comparison. Um, you know, God is really kind of uh, holding back his hand of judgment, if you ask me. But look at how bad things are with just that. You know, a really bad version of the flu. People are dying. People are sick for an extended period of time. People are feeling after effects long after they actually had the virus. People have lost taste and smell. You know, they're still talking about that um, dizziness. I've heard this. There's like like long, long impacts with some of the symptoms. But we don't see the mortality rates as you know, you know the the Spanish flu in 1918, the Black Death, where you're talking about like you you you're losing huge segments of the population the mortality rate is so high it's not that bad but look we're ready you know we're we're a mess you know countries across the world are shutting things down people are starving to death because we're not getting food out like we used to we don't even recognize how bad the impact is but it's not so much the virus as our response to the virus um because we're not looking at it as well this is from god how should we respond to it? They're saying this is a problem, and man must fix it. But if, we, and by all means, you know, we, we as Christians we don't eschew doctors and, and medical science and, and healthcare. Um, but we do look at, you know, first if we are sick, is there anything we need to evaluate in our life that we need to pray um, um, for unconfessed sin and deal with that? And that God might heal us because he could be using sickness in our lives. That's what it says in James. Could be using sickness in our lives to point things out to us. Because that's when we start getting serious about God. Is when we have trials and tribulations. Sickness could be one of those. So a pandemic, how, how far do you have to examine our, us as a nation to say, is there anything wrong? Is there anything we need to repent of for? Maybe, maybe the blood of millions of unborn children, you know, 
Um, oh, we're worried about elections. How many elections have we helped other leaders steal in other nations because it was in America's interests as far as we were concerned? Um, how do we treat, you know, um, the foreigner? How do we treat the, the sojourner, the, the orphan, the widow? Are we doing... There's so much sin that needs to be repented of in our nation. Um, imagine if we as a nation had repented um, how things might look if we started applying God's word and, and start taking him at his word as far as how do you handle a pandemic? Well, do you quarantine everyone? Do you put a quarantine mask on everyone's face? <laughs> or do you quarantine the sick? Do you take special care of those who are at the highest risk? You have to have a biblical perspective or things aren't really going to improve. We might put a band-aid on this and it might get a little bit better later on. But God's word shows if, if he's sending judgment and you're ignoring it, in Amos he says, I did this and you did not return to me. I did that and you did not return to me. I did this and you didn't return to me. He goes, prepare to meet your God, O Israel, because he was sending smaller signs along the way, smaller judgment along the way that was supposed to remind them and warn them of what's to come and they didn't look back so there's negative sanctions in god's world when we don't do things his way where you know we we still have the effects of the curse in the world and yet christ has come to make all things new he's still sovereign over these things he still has um a law for us to to live by so we don't have to take man's crazy ideas of we need to cut our population, you know. Um, and, and you see, we're concerned about fossil fuels and how long they'll last. But look at look at the technology that's coming out, the things that people are coming up with. Um, and you don't think that's a grace of God, who 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 he makes men's minds brilliant. He gives them understanding of the laws of physics, and 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 they're able to figure these things out. And that's common grace because you have unbelievers who are doing amazing things. But Egypt was really rich before Israel left. <laughs> so we get to plunder the Egyptians. You know, it, um, God talks about that too. The, the wicked, they store up wealth for the righteous. So there can be all sorts of technological advancements. And if these men and women don't give glory to God, that's fine. God is the one who gave them the, the, uh, the intelligence, to be, the ability to make those things but he's going to give it to his people you know so um no, you had a question it was a joke it was a joke <laughs> but you went i just kept going and now it's not funny yeah <laughs> sorry okay does that make sense i i find you know thinking about some of these things you know i don't gary north like you said he's an economist right he thinks in ways I'm not familiar with thinking, and I'm, I'm sweating here just trying to, like, say the words he's saying and think in those kind of terms, um, because it seems like it's, it's out there, but it's it's not. It, it does have real practical application, and part of what we have to recognize is, do we understand the foundation? Do we have the, the proper filter, the lens to see the world? Um, to know how we ought to respond to it. And and the first thing that you need to know is that you're a steward. You're not autonomous. And that's for everyone. Uh, you know, it, it has application to the nation, to the nation's economy, to businesses, corporations, to the government. No one is autonomous. No one is independent in and of themselves. 
you know they came you know they have this self-existence only god has self-existence you know there's this uh creature creator distinction and we have to recognize that and recognize that god he's sovereign all over all of this and we have to live in light of the way he has set up this world the way he set up the economy you know people talk about the law of god and well, these things were particular to Israel, you know, and their culture. Who created Israel's culture? <laughs> Who set that up? That was God, right? And people say, well, the ancient Near East, those people back then, they had a lot of similar things. Who do you think established all this from the beginning? There's so much that happens in, in Genesis and stuff. And, and we see relationships and how men and women relate to one another and families work and you know and how things are punished when when things go wrong when when there are reports of adultery and, and and stuff like that we see them responding in a certain way that we see progressively teased out and explained and, and, and further clarified and given greater detail to when we get to the law you know and, and as scripture goes out and we you know we read through the you know the proverbs and stuff like that you know God gives us information along the way, but these people had an understanding. Why? Because they're image bearers of God. And he had already revealed certain things to them that was later codified, and we, and we have it here so that we can read and, and know how we ought to live. But these people knew these things because God had revealed himself to man, and he had revealed how things ought to work. So they had an understanding of it. And yet for those who rejected God, they would corrupt you know uh these ways they would they would they would deviate from it so they still understood the concept of sacrifice but they made up their own gods in their own minds you know they enjoyed the common grace of god they enjoyed you know rain that fell on the righteous and the wicked you know the sun that would shine the crops that would grow but they refused romans 1 says to give thanks to god right and so they worshiped the the, the creature rather than the creator and they were given over um, but all the time they're stealing from God. They're 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 getting all this. They're you know they're breathing His air. They're eating His food, and they're not giving thanks. And we and the same things happen today, and we see the consequences of that. But um, Leviticus is is helping to see that we're stewards. We have an obligation to acknowledge God, and so that's. Uh, that's where we're starting from and so hopefully that's you know some of this stuff might have been a little bit fuzzy or it might be like new concepts for you as you as we're thinking through but hopefully some of these things are are hitting and, and you'll remember it and as we go it'll deepen your thinking um appreciate our brother lawrence here for the sunday school lessons over the years and he's like, I think some people are starting to get it, because <laughs> you know, like, he's he's talking about some of the same things over and over again. Um, and I don't know if it's something about just being there in the morning and the coffee, the caffeine hasn't seeped in yet, because it's not always like a, an outstanding response. But um, what you'll hear is things that aren't generally talked about in the church today. You know, um, you have to do in-depth study on these things and you have to talk about these things. And most people, when they go to the Old Testament, they're, they're content to do character studies. You know, they're content to talk about some of the heroes of the faith and what they did right and, oh, what they did wrong. Um, but they're not talking about the framework that God gives for 
his world. Um, and too many of us, uh, he, we're not even taught how to read and understand the Bible. And he's talking about literary structure and, and how does God even compose a book to, to, to get across themes and ideas. Um, how does he communicate to his people and what, what patterns are, are, are shown over and over again. But the more we listen to it, the more we hear it, our thinking start, we starts to develop, you know, and, and we start to grasp these things. Um, so it, it's really important. I mean, coming to Reformed theology, um, for me, did reading and stuff like that, but I listened to a lot of stuff. I listened to um, sermons on these topics. I, I listened to podcasts, I, uh, audio books, all these different things. It's, it's not just, you know, we talk about... Um, the word of God and how it's precious, but you have to you have to dig deep. You know, you'll find things you know laying on the ground, as it were. Like, oh, look at that! That's that's perfect. And but there's some stuff where you have to really dig in the word to to draw stuff out and to understand it. Um, and so we're we're called to do that. And we, we live in a day and age where we want instant gratification. <laughs> give it to me in a soundbite. Give it. To, you know, if you can't do it in a in a in a, in a tweet. <laughs> it's it's more information than I want, right? Um, you know, if you can't just get it all in one meme, you know, that's uh, too much. Um, but we really need to dig into the word and 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 spend a lot of time understanding these things because it matters. It matters how we how we live. So understanding, okay, we're stewards, right? Um, and that's going to affect how we we look at our own individual situation. All right, because here you are, and if you're healthy enough, you're able-bodied, and you're able to work, you have an income. How do you spend that income? What do you do with it? You know, does God's word have anything to say about it? You know, do you give Him your first and best, or do you give Him whatever's left over at the end of the month? You know, after you've, you know, paid for your food and your clothes and your Netflix subscription. You know, when you, when you get all the important stuff out of the way, then then you give a little something to God, right? Um, it matters. The economy matters. Your economy matters. Uh, and you have to recognize I'm a steward. And I have to give an account to God. So we're going to... Um, that's the first chapter. So I'm going to go over the conclusion where he just kind of summarizes some of the things that we talked about. And uh, if you have any questions, we'll address those, and then we'll be done with chapter one. This is session five or six. Not too bad, right? There's many more chapters to go. <laughs> uh, the second chapter is, is a little bit easier. It's not as in-depth. In the third chapter, I make no promises. Okay. Conclusion. The sacrificing to something sovereign over him, point one, sovereign, Man acknowledges his debt to this higher authority, too, right? He seeks to draw a boundary of safety or immunity around himself, his works, and his property, point three. He believes that his sacrifice will enable him to avert the wrath and or gain the blessings of this higher authority, point four. Enabling him to leave a valuable legacy to his heirs, point five. Hopefully we've talked about the covenant enough that you, <laughs> you got all those as I said them. So he said, offering sacrifice is a ritual acknowledgement of someone else's sovereignty and one's own economic subordination, which is stewardship. Um, 
Again, this is just a summary of all the things that we've talked about. Covenant-keeping man in the Mosaic Covenant was told by God to sacrifice animals from his flock. The animal had to be the best of his flock. It had to be blemish-free. This pointed symbolically, it was a representative um, of the ultimate sacrifice, God's ethically blemish-free son. Uh, and of course, we talked about how he didn't require total sacrifice from his people. You didn't have to give up everything that you had, right? Um, there was limits on it. Uh, God placed specific limits or boundaries on the required sacrifices. These sacrificial boundaries put man in his proper place. They also allowed him to retain the majority portion of the wealth under his jurisdiction. Um, this is something I think I wanted to touch on. Um, I kind of touched on it already as we're, as we're talking about it. Um, he says, in order to lawfully keep what he owned, he had to acknowledge ritually that it was all a gift from God. He acknowledged that his property was a residual. It was things left over for his use after God had taken his fair share. Um, the same theology of residual ownership undergirds the tithe. So we have the tithe today. Um, and I'm going to talk about that just briefly. We're actually going to talk a little bit about it more in the uh, second chapter with the, the grain offering. Interestingly enough, I don't know if you associate the grain offering with the tithe, but we'll get there. Um, but the, the tithe today, we talk about giving, you know, our, you know, the first 10% of our income to God. And there are people who say today, oh, no, that was back then, you know, and, and they, they make all sorts of gymnastics about it. And like, well, it was really like 33% because there was a tithe for this and a tithe for that and a tithe for the tithe was a tithe was a tithe. What does the tithe mean? tithe 10th right so god says a tenth that's what's expected that over there are other sacrifices you know first fruits these token offerings and stuff like that but but the tithe was used for certain things um and it was an acknowledgement to god that he was he was sovereign over all these things sure Ninety percent. It, it's funny. Growing up, um, we had, uh, you know, when we were little, we had an allowance. But as we got older and we had jobs and stuff like that, we had to give a portion of our income to uh, to the household economy, as it were, um, right? And so my parents required twenty five percent. They were not as gracious as God. <laughs> But they weren't as rich as God either, so. <laughs> and we ate a lot of food. <laughs> you know, keep in mind, it's like, I'm thinking of my older brother, so like, you know, four boys and a girl. Who's eating most of the food in the house? Um, <laughs> so they required 25%. And at the time, I remember, like, you know, the car insurance, like, they got in the car insurance, um, and I had to pay, like, 25% towards that as well. Eventually, I was, like, working, like, as a... I was working at uh, Pizza Hut as my first official job with a paycheck, and it was dating myself somewhat here. But like I think the, the minimum wage back then was like 4.25 or something. Um, yeah, <laughs> and so I was doing that full time, so bringing home whew, like over $100 a week at least, <laughs> full time. Um, yeah, um, and eventually. So I was giving, you know, half of that to my parents for, you know, towards room and board and towards my car insurance. And then I switched, I was a Pizza Hut cook, right? So I'm just like, you know, 
it's not even like a real pizza maker and other you know the mm. pizza restaurant it's not it's easier it's, it's not as good either and then I saw a waitress what's that no you, there was you, you mixed the dough with like water to like get a thing and then you had it but it wasn't it wasn't the same but you know, it was pan pizza so you're putting it in the pan you let it you know you put in the, the, the proofer or whatever but I don't know. It was, you're talking about many years ago now. I, I barely remember. What I do remember is watching a waitress in the money in the back counting her money, and she was making. I'm like, I'm pretty good at math, and I could see very quickly that she was counting more money than I had made that night. Um, and I was like, it looks like you make more than I do. She's like, oh yeah. I was like, train me. So I became a waiter, and I started making way more money than um, you know, four dollars an hour. You know, on a, on a good Friday night, I was making eighteen, twenty dollars an hour, something like that. Um, so like, this was great. And then I realized, but I'm still paying my mom twenty five percent for my car insurance. I said, how much is my car insurance? And so we had an adjustment in prices. <laughs> there was there was a negotiation of sorts. Um, but I was still giving twenty five percent towards the house, and I gave whatever it was for the car insurance. Because at that point, I was, you know, making enough to to pay more than that. Um, but I, the story wasn't even really about me. I was thinking of my older brother who had to give 25% of his, his income from his job towards the house. And I remember him, com you know, my dad relaying the story of how he was complaining to him. Like, oh, it's not fair. i got to pay 25%. That's so much money. My dad's like, 25% yeah, is a lot, huh? He's like, yeah, it's not fair. He goes, but you get to keep three times as much as that huge sum of money. <laughs> And that kind of put an end to the argument. <laughs> he had um, painted himself into a corner saying how much 25% was. I'm like, but you have three times that, so you should be fine. Um, and God only requires 10%, right? And gives us nine times what he expects from us. And yet, it's an acknowledgement that God is the one who has enabled us to work. He's given us the job. I mean, I don't know how many of you, how many of you have prayed for a job to come through? Um and got the job. There you go. <laughs> we got one in the back. I remember, I mean, I was working, when I was engaged to Joelle, I was going to school, and I didn't want to go. Like, I got my associates, and I was going to go on for my bachelor's, and I was like, I didn't want to do it. And I went to semester, and I was like, Ugh. and they're like, ah, just go. You know, do it. I was like, fine. So I did a semester. I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> I, I left. Um, and I remember getting a job at a, at a telemarketing company, which was like, like, all right, I can budget this. I can, I can provide for a family on this telemarketing job uh, income. But it wasn't great, and I didn't like being a telemarketer. Um, and then the post office called from a test I had taken like a year and a half ago. And like, oh, you're, you're on the list or whatever. Come on in for an interview. And I got a job there. Um, and it took me a long time to like working for the Postal Service. Um, because they really work in there. It's a hard job. Um, but it, praying for a job that was going to provide for my family and I could pay the bills and do what I need to do. And here on the island, it's tough for two jobs most of the years. Um, but it, it, it's so hard, you know. Um, and yet, praying for praying that God would provide. And so we pray for jobs and, and they work. So God answers those prayers. He gives us... He gives us what we need. He provides for us, right? Us being healthy enough to to work and to do that, that's a gift from God. And most people just take it for granted that they're healthy. 
or that they got this job. Like, well, I'm the most qualified. <laughs> you know, I'm, sm I'm smart enough. I'm great enough. I'm whatever. And we give no thanks to God and just go back to Romans 1. <laughs> did not acknowledge God. Did not give thanks. That's where most of us are. We, we, we take ourselves for granted, our giftings, our abilities, and we think, I got here all on my own. And we don't recognize God. But he gives us those things um, with an expectation that we're a steward of the resources he gives us. What does is, what is, uh, Paul say in Ephesians? You know, let the thief steal no longer, but what? That he would work with his hands, that he might have enough for himself or to share with others. A biblical perspective means that, you know, we talked about before about, you know, um, lending to people and not expecting anything in return. And that's not to just say, well, if anyone comes up and asks you for money, well, you know what the scripture says, you got to give it to them, right? Here you go. And you're just broke. No, there's intelligent mercy. There's wisdom in, in using your finances. Um, you don't give away money you don't have. You don't put yourself into debt. And Proverbs talks about that, about being wise about how you, you manage your finances and who you lend money to. Um, so there's these biblical parameters to do that in. But the concept is we should be generous. We should be open-handed. We should not be greedy and stingy. Like, I gotta hold on. You know, Proverbs talks about that as well. Um, you know, that kind of person, they never have enough. And yet, the person who's generous always has what he needs, right? So, there's, there's a biblical way of looking at things. Um, but God calls us to acknowledge Him. And so, we have the tithe. So, you have the Israelites in, in the Old Testament here, on the Old Covenant, giving, giving a tenth of what they had. Um, giving these sacrifices to recognize and honor God as the sovereign, as the transcendent, who we owe everything, and yet he only takes this, right? And the state takes so much more. Keep in mind, God required a tenth, right? And then remember in, in 1 Samuel when uh, the people want a king and Samuel tells them what a king is going to require, and he says he is going to take a tenth of your income and you're going to be slaves, right? A tenth. Who wants to go back to just the kingdom taking a tenth, you know, the civil magistrate only taking a tenth of our income, and that's slavery. Um, when you start looking at, you know, you get a paycheck and you start looking at how much um, the federal government takes, how much the state government takes, uh, you know, the, the different taxes for Medicare and all these different things, um, and then you go and, and you go buy something at the store and they add sales tax to that. If you buy a house and they'll put property tax on that. You try to figure out percentage-wise how much you're giving to the state. If you're if you're only paying 10%, call me because I need to find out how, how I can do whatever you're doing. Um, but they take. But do we? So there's. I'm, I went off on a rant. That's not what I wanted to talk about. Was the government? Um, the idea here was that we were supposed to be acknowledging God first with our our income right um and i've talked to guys today so that people say well the tithe isn't for today you know we just give whatever you know it says the lord loves a, a cheerful giver so just give whatever you can give while still being cheerful that's <laughs> it's great um <laughs> so, um yeah I've, I've run into guys who hold to different theology like you know like uh, the new covenant theology and stuff like that and they're saying well the, the you know the, the, the that's not for today you know, now we're under the law of Christ, which actually has a greater obligation on everyone. 
I remember speaking to one brother in, uh, in particular, um, and he's like, you know, under the new covenant, you know, our obligation to God is greater. So we should be giving God way more, you know. But I was like, but do you tithe? <laughs> well, God understands. <laughs> I thought it's interesting. Do you, <laughs> do, you, do you hold the Sabbath? Well, no, you know, understand. Like, so, it's, so it's funny, like, we, we have this greater obligation, but when you actually get to, like, something concrete, your time and your money, all of a sudden you're making excuses as to why you don't have to give, you know, the same. Um, and so this is, because we're talking about it, it it's just a, a reminder that if we do put God first, has he given us an, a framework to work in um, to acknowledge how we're being stewards of our time? Is, is the Sabbath a priority to us? Is, is coming out and, and worshiping a priority to us? Should we give God more? Absolutely. I mean, we're told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. You know, do you think he was saying, well, only make sure you see each other at least once a week. Is that what body life is? Like, all right, stranger, <laughs> see you next time. Um, I think there should be more involved with that. But we certainly should dedicate a day to going and worshiping God, to having that rest um, that corporate worship being rejuvenating for for the week to come you know as we go out to seek to advance the kingdom we need that that's a means of grace it's not just a, a Sunday schedule checklist that we have to do um, and our finances and stuff like that we'll find ourselves getting into all sorts of trouble yeah and it's not to be legalistic and dogmatic you know like oh you gotta you know like we're checking your checkbook to see if you're given enough to God um, but You'll find that people who are having money problems are usually not giving what they ought to. And you say, well, God kind of says something about that in his word. If you don't make the priority of him, you're going to find troubles downstream. Because if you're not putting him first, you're probably not being wise about the other money that you do hold on to and how you're spending it. And the same with our time. What are we doing with our time, you know, when we're not prioritizing God first? How's the rest of our week going? How's the rest of our days going? Um, I think if you take a look at it, you'll recognize there's wisdom in that. <laughs> you know, God, this is God's world. He set it up in a certain way. Um, do we acknowledge him first? So just something to be mindful of. I was just thinking about that conversation that we had. And uh, I was actually thinking about the, the Sabbath and, and and we're talking about worship here, that the burnt offering, this idea of coming and meeting with God, um, and this was necessary. This was part and parcel of the faithful Israelites' life was to come and worship God. And so he was like, well, we need to focus even more on Christ and give even more of our time to Christ. I'm like, but do you do the one day? <laughs> if you're not doing that, you're really telling me that you're prioritizing him you know, throughout the week. Um, it, it, there's There's a problem there. So... Um, if you have questions or comments, do you have questions or comments? We're almost done. No? Okay. Continuing in our summary conclusion, the Mosaic sacrifices were representative. They represented the death of man and the death of nature. Um, he goes a little bit more in depth on the death of nature and stuff. And I don't, there are things in here that I don't necessarily agree with him on every point on. And so I might just, because there's so much to work with, I'm just distilling it down to what I think is most important. And there's certain things I'm just going to skip over. 
but I've made the mistake of underlining that one sentence. <laughs> so it's like, oh, right. I do believe in the death of nature. We were just talking about scarcity and the fact that all things are being made new and that we're, there's covenantal... So you believe in the resurrection of nature? I do. I do. Even dogs. <laughs> I'm going to just cut the tape for a second. <laughs> <laughs> dogs. Not my dog. Sorry. Sorry, people on the tape, if you're animal lovers. My dog's evil. <laughs> Moving on. Um, yes, but so these were, they, the, the sacrifices were representative. Um, and under Christ, all things are being made new, and the resurrection is glorious. And we'll leave it at that. We'll discuss other things after the fact. I love Lawrence. <laughs> Um, economically, uh, bankruptcy law has acknowledged the Bible's view of debt, uh, forgiveness. So when a man declares bankruptcy, he hands over his assets to his creditors, including debts owed to him. Uh, henceforth, he can no longer demand payment of debts owed to him. So he went into great detail about the parable of the unforgiving servant and the fact that he had been released of his debt. And so he had no right to claim the debts that were owed to him because in reality they were owed to the master. He was a steward. Um, and so we talked about that. And there's a, a hierarchy uh, to stewardship and forgiveness and debt. So, uh, And we also, in talking about that, talked about the dangers of debt and being careful about getting ourselves in debt with covenant breakers. Um, because if their bill comes due one day, that could affect us downstream. Um, and so we want to remain unentangled from that kind of mess. Remember, debt, slavery, these things are a curse. Um, you know, if we're stuck in a certain situation, you know, God is sovereign. He recognizes that. But if we can improve it, we should. Um, and if we're in a good situation, we should not be reckless with our, the resources that we have and find ourselves enslaved again. So these things are important. <laughs> it will matter if when we talk about finances, you know, and, and, you know, for people I've talked to, you know, whether it be counseling or just in general, you know, I've encouraged people to be wise about their finances. I've recommended the Dave Ramsey thing just to get an idea about uh, debt and how we should be looking at money and resources um, because no one really explained that to me. In sufficient detail when I was younger and foolish as I was I was not and I was also your theology and your eschatology will affect how you <laughs> handle your finances uh, and your time because I was initially dispensational and expecting the rapture any day right um, so you don't have to save for retirement when the rapture is coming <laughs> that's a violation of biblical principles uh, and it was funny because like I you know, grew up in a, in a house where we, we were dispensational um, and my father was um, consistent as far with scripture, though. He says that, you know, expect it in your lifetime, but live as though it's not. So he would say, you know, plan for retirement, do those things. But when the rubber met the road and I was in a tough jam financially, I'm thinking, probably coming back, though, right? <laughs> so, don't really need to save for the 401k. I need to pay this bill now. Um, and... Now I have a different theology and eschatology and a different view of finances. And now I think about, you know, the Proverbs talking about how the righteous man saves up an inheritance for his children's children. And he has, like, a view of a legacy and of the future and preparing for the future. Um, 
So thinking about our, our finances and, and how we do things. So I, I recommend that to people um, about, about debt. You know, and, and so Dave Ramsey said, and, and thinking about our finances because we are stewards and we want to be good stewards. You know, we, we want to honor God in that. We want to be thinking forward. We want to be thinking about the future. And so we should be mindful of that. Um, so we were talking about debt relief. So the bankruptcy, bankruptcy laws that we have today are a reflection of the grace that was shown in Scripture in the Old Testament, the, the mercy of being able to be forgiven of, of your debts. Um, but we don't want to, that's not something like we would encourage people like, don't worry, there's bankruptcy laws. So get in the debt and then file and you know go to the court and, and get that out of there. Uh, he also says if, if things turn around for you and you're in a better situation, you should pay back what you owe. You know, especially when you're thinking of people who are like, if you've borrowed from, you know, a brother or sister in Christ, you know, with these credit cards, I'm not sympathetic to them, <laughs> you know, bankruptcy where they're charging 25% interest and just like, you know, but still, it, it's not a good, we want to be good stewards and we want to be good representatives of Christ. So be careful about that. Um, but we, we talked about that last time. So as we draw to a close the limitations um, the Bible's definitive limitation on blood sacrifice has placed a definitive limit on the mandatory economic sacrifice neither state nor the church possesses an unlimited claim to our wealth we do hear about those cults that make you sign over everything to them like oh great we all live in a community here so I'm gonna need your <laughs> you know all your property it's gonna be all into one um, I mean, you had the Anabaptists and stuff like that in the early days um, who believed in, in basically a form of that, that communal living where everyone had, no one had right to any of their property. And you say, well, the early church had that. Not exactly. When you look at Ananias and Sapphira, what is, what's Peter's rebuke of them? Wasn't that property yours? It wasn't like they were obligated to give it to them. And he goes, and when you sold it, wasn't it yours to do what you wanted to? That their sin came in lying about, you know, saying this was the price that we sold it for and we're giving that full amount to you. And because they wanted to look good, but they wanted to pocket a little coin, they weren't honest about it. And that's what God punished them for. But private property was still a thing. They still had legal ownership of that. So he goes, neither the state nor the church possesses an unlimited claim to our wealth. The tithe sets the maximum limits of both of both institutions in New Covenant times. This is a great blessing from God. Under the Mosaic Law, the combined burden was far greater, um, since he talks about all the economic burdens of the Old Covenant system. The, the sacrifices, the, the feasts and the festivals where you'd have to travel great distances and, and pay to lodge and then go back and, and all that stuff. There was an economic burden there. He says, but when men refuse to sacrifice to God, they eventually wind up sacrificing far more to the state. <laughs> Exhibit A, well, look at your paycheck, right? Uh, God graciously limits his economic demands on us. The state, representing the collective God, autonomous man, is not equally gracious. This is why widespread moral rebellion always brings high taxes and inflation. The state demands to be placated. It claims the moral high ground by proclaiming the economics of confiscation. It robs the productive and gives to the unproductive. This is Satan's political economy. 
the disinheritance of the righteous. To thwart the satanic system of wealth redistribution, men must place God's boundaries around the state, but this means that they must pay their tithes to their local institutional churches. When you think about that, now I'm saying the tithe, the tithe, the tithe. And, you know, from the church I kind of grew up in, this would make people feel very uncomfortable. Like, they're just after your money. <laughs> just like all my unbelieving friends said. Um, you know, they're after your money, yeah. Um, but why do we say that? Um, is it just so that the, the pastor can drive a Mercedes? If you have a spare Mercedes, and no. Um, what are we supposed to be doing with that tithe? What was the responsibility of the priests and the Levites? With the, with the money that they received from the tithe, the produce that they received from the tithe. Teach. To teach, right? They were teaching the law to the people. They were informing them of God's ways. Yeah, we should have a school. We should have a school. From our tithe. From our tithe. And dead serious. That, that's, that's, we're supposed to be helping care for the poor. We're supposed to be helping educate, right? What the church is responsible to do compared to what the state's responsible to do. Look how much money the state takes, but look how much they're trying to do with that money. They're trying to care for the poor. They're trying to educate the next generation. And they're making a mess on every front. <laughs> Everything that they touch turns worse, but they spend way more money to do it. I don't even want to tell you how much I pay in property taxes <laughs> for a school system that I don't use and educate our kids for a fraction of that, you know, what it costs for curriculum and stuff like that. There was expenses. I remember like early on, like we'd spend, it would eventually work that we'd spend less money because like we could reuse the stuff that we had. <laughs> like, okay, you get last year's textbooks because that's your new grade, you know, and they've moved on to other things. So eventually you have the whole set, right? <laughs> um, so as time went on, we actually spent less money homeschooling, um, but you have to buy curriculum. You have to buy these different things. Um, you know, you got to pay a teacher. <laughs> Fortunately, she takes room and board. So, <laughs> you know, it works out well. But uh, there's an expense to it, but it's nowhere near what they're doing. And the education that we're giving is lined up with the scriptures. We're teaching a biblical worldview in everything because God is the God of math. He's the God of science. He's the God of history, right? Uh, he's the God of, of literature, right? There's a, a biblical worldview that is attached to all these things. And if the public schools didn't try to teach about evolution, um, and that if they didn't push a homosexual agenda, and, and if they didn't do all the things that we would view as highly corrupting, right? Say, say they took that out, right? No more evolution. I don't even know if they could do that. <laughs> um, but, and, and, and no more pushing like this, you know, sexual perversion as normal lifestyle type thing. Would there still be a problem with the public school education? Yes. You know why? It's not their job. It's not their job. But what is a public school education, um, even devoid of some of the worst elements, also teach you? It gives you 12 years and if they say, all right, we won't teach those things, but we're not going to teach the Bible. We're not going to teach about God. They're going to educate your child for 12 years. How many thousands of hours of instruction that require reading and writing and testing um, and standardized tests 
And what do you find out at the end of that 12 years? God's really not important. Why? Because they didn't teach about him. They told you, this is going to prepare you for life. This is going to prepare you for adulthood and for, and for career and all that stuff. But they told you nothing about God. What have they said? You can have a godless world, a godless system. You can have a God who you maybe hear about on Sundays for an hour with a flannel graph. Am I dating myself? <laughs> How many of you people know about flannel graphs for Sunday school? He's like, yeah, you're dating. So there you go. You got a couple. <laughs> I see that hand. Um, right? If, if we give them thousands of hours of instruction in godless education, and then we give them an hour of Jesus on Sunday morning, what do you think those kids are going to grow up to think? What's their worldview going to be? They're not going to think you need God. Because I didn't need God for growing up. I didn't need God for education. I didn't need God to know everything I need to know to become an adult. Um, that's a problem. It's, it's not the state's job to do it, and they can't do it. Um, they, they can't do it well at all. Th that's our job. It's the church's job. We should be seeking to educate. You know, I've, I've since we started homeschooling, I've been a, uh, a crusader for the virtue of homeschooling. Um, and while that's my preference, I also do believe in the value of a classical Christian education, you know, and so there's some people who like, because of, you know, they live on Long Island and they got married and they need two incomes to pay for the house that they're already invested in and the housing markets, you know, burst and they're underwater and the thing. And so they're in a situation where like, it's almost impossible for us to educate our kids. The church is supposed to come alongside and help that. You know, we should be offering scholarship. Like if they, they're working through jobs, maybe they can afford tuition for a Christian school. But even if they can't, then we should be helping them with that. We should not be abandoning them to the public school. We should never be sending anyone to the state to say, go to that God to get food and clothing and shelter. We should be doing it. And we've given it up. And so for now, I mean... You have people who, they don't think hospitality extends beyond having, you know, a coffee date, you know, after church. Like, oh, we'll have, you know, this is our hospitality hours. We have some coffee and some baked goods, and look how hospitable we are. Well, how about, like, you have any room in your house? <laughs> Can you move people in there? But I remember talking, you know, talking to people who, they've been on the government dole for so long. Like, why would I give up my apartment that's paid for, you know, to come live in your shack, you know? Because... You're taking money from the state, you know? That's not a good situation. I don't care. <laughs> it's better than living with you. Granted! <laughs> living with me isn't great. <laughs> but still, there's a right way and wrong way to do things. There's other people we can move you in with. Um, but we don't think that way. I mean, we don't think of hospitality beyond maybe having someone into our home for a meal. Um, if our society goes the way it's going to go... Some of you are going to find yourselves moving in with people, <laughs> whether you want to or not, because things are going to be really ugly. Keep it up. <laughs> I'm going to have to stop the tape right here. What's that? All right. We have gone off track. I'm going <laughs> to close this out so I can rebuke Lawrence off the tape <laughs> for stirring up trouble. Um, we're, we're over, ah, you know what, if you're going to listen to an hour, you'll listen to an hour and a half, right? I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> we're at an hour and ten. 
regarding, I've gotten a little bit off off subject, but actually not really. I hear. Um, Satan's political economy, the disinheritance of the righteous, thwart the satanic system of wealth redis redistribution. We must place God's boundaries around the state, and we must pay tithes to their local churches. Sometimes just reading that over reminds me, what were we talking about? Why do we pay tithes to the church? Why are we supposed to pay tithes to the church? So the pastor can have a really good salary, a really expensive car. No, the church is meant to be feeding the poor. It's meant to be you know, clothing the naked. It's meant to be educating the children. We're supposed to be productive with those finances. The Levites were educating. The Levites lived off the tithes, and their job was to educate the people and to take care of the poor and to do those things. I mean, each individual citizen had a responsibility for the poor. If you had a field, you left room for gleaning, right? For the poor to come and to be able to. So we have an obligation as believers towards the poor. That's the church's responsibility. It's not the state's responsibility. The state bears the sword, you know, there to fight for justice and righteousness as God has defined it in his word. You know, they're supposed to protect us from enemies without and within. They're supposed to punish evildoers and, and give praise to the righteous. They are not meant to do everything for us. Um, but when the church doesn't do its job, nature abhors a vacuum. There's a, you know, if we don't acknowledge God and our obligation to him, something's going to fill that void. And each and every time, it's the state. And they grow more and more oppressive. Um, so if, if we would understand that, if we would speak faithfully to it, um, we should look to see about writing the ship. But for Christians, we're going to have to pay twice at first. We're you know, paying the property taxes, but still going to pay. It's not, it's not like, well, I'm already paying for that public education system. Might as well use it. Mm -mm, no, thank you. You're going to have to pay twice. Um, well, my tax dollars are going towards the welfare system. Still got to pay and help the, the poor um, and show them that there is a better way. Um, and not everyone's going to take it because the government just gives out a free check with no accountability. But eventually those checks are going to run out. Um, the way our society is going, if there's no repentance, we're going to be talking about really feeding the hungry and clothing the naked. And it's going to get very serious. And then God will get the glory. Uh, this might be helpful. Uh the poor tie. The poor tie. Right. We have the benevolent fund mm -hmm. to put a number on it. Right. If you're, if you're curious, it was a tenth every third year, so that would be like three, four, three, 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 three percent. Yeah. So three percent of your income should be part of the benevolent fund. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's because it's ten percent every third year. That's how it was collected for the third years. Right. The way. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no. The tithe. The tithe was the tithe, and then the poor tithe was yeah, in the third year. So, I mean, we should be thinking about that. Um, but, you know, most of the time we're so entangled. We, we have so much stuff. What we think of as poverty here in America, we have no idea. You know, we have, we have so much, you know. Um, and, and there are truly poor people. There are people who are, you know, skipping meals or, or missing meals and they, we, we see are homeless. But as I mentioned last time, not everyone, some people would prefer to be homeless <laughs> than to have any sort of accountability. You know, in the wintertime, 
the, the homeless ministries that house them overnight, but say, right, but you can't go outside and meet a dealer or something like that. Like you have to stay inside once you're inside um, for the night. I mean, if you want to leave, you're free to leave and just go. But when it's freezing out there, they want to come in and they want to sleep and they get, they get, you know, like I said showers and haircuts. You know, they'll put a movie on something like that. They'll they'll feed them. They'll separate the men and the women, and they'll have people who will stay up at night to make sure there's no. Because you hear about some of the horror shows and some of these shelters of, of abuse and assault, and they have armed guards to make sure you know cops who are off duty who will make sure the people are safe. They have a safe place to sleep. Um, out of the elements. But once summer rolls around and they're not freezing, they'll give all that up so they can have their freedom to be out there with no one telling them they can't get drunk, they can't get high. Um, but for those people who are God's elect, you know, those people who are actually looking for help and God has given us the opportunity to serve them, we should be mindful of that and, and trying to set that up because the state working it the way it does, it will not be able to last forever. Um, it's going to be a mess. The church should be seeking to make them obsolete. We should be doing what we're supposed to do. Um, and so we can say, listen, let us handle this. You know, um, And it happened in the Roman Empire with the, the Corinthians, right? Paul rebukes them for going to you know, you know, court against each other and having lawsuits. He goes, we're going to judge angels. You can't get a couple of guys. You can't mediate between us. And they got so good at mediating these disputes that the Romans said, this is great. Our courts are over, you know, they're, they're overcrowded. They're overbooked. You know, there's this overflow backlog of cases. Help us out. And so they started judging cases and they got the robes and that's how things kind of <laughs> developed from there in that, in that one sense. But they were, they were using God's law to do what they ought to do to, to help. Um, to mediate, to reconcile, to, to take care of things. And by the way, what, what law do you think they used? Just the New Testament? Just what Paul wrote to them in, in a letter or two? Or do you think they went back to the Old Testament and God's standard to say what's right and what's wrong? Um, and so we start taking on these things. Um, we had, uh, who was it? Uh, Chalmers in, in Scotland who eliminated the welfare state. People recognize it's a problem. They recognize you know, the, the budget issues and the funding. If the church would actually present such a suitable alternative to take care of these things, you know, who doesn't want to save money, <laughs> right? The, the government spends way more money and is less efficient when they're trying to help people than the church could be applying God's word, using accountability, all those different things. But if we're not thinking that way, it's never going to happen. So this should be our goal as a church to realize the gospel applies to every area of life. God's word applies to every area. And we should be seeking to make them of these programs and services obsolete. And so we can get back to what God has said should be the church's role and the state's role. And we don't have to look down at the state or look up at the state and say, hey, get your foot off my face. You know, um, We can get things back in their lane the way they ought to be. Um, so that closes out chapter one. Um, we went a little bit over today or a lot of bit over today. It all depends, um, how you're looking at it, but we'll, we'll close it here. We'll pray. Um, and 
Well, I ask about next week. Then the next time we meet, we're going to talk about chapter two and the grain offering and the applications there. But we'll discuss that in that. So let's close in prayer, and uh, then we'll, we'll we'll talk. Heavenly Father, we we thank you again for your word. We thank you for um, uh, the men who have come before, who have helped us to provide insight on on these issues and help us to rethink how your word applies to our situation here and now to recognize that um, Leviticus is not some obsolete Old Testament thing that has no application to us today um, other than a reminder of the, the wonderful and vital truth of Jesus Christ and how he has um, been our, our covering, our offering, the perfect sacrifice. But Lord, there's so many principles here that you've given us for our nation for our own individual lives we pray that you continue to grow us in wisdom and understanding that we might um, love you more and serve you better and bring you honor and glory in Christ's name we pray amen you have been listening to the reformed rookie podcast where we aim to teach reformed theology to beginners or rookies be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda. Dr. Luther, are you prepared to retract these writings? In some I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant? Or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen.